Daushal Shai, the mountains of Vinakdur. The morning came pale and swift. The men were shaken awake by the Calliopian man who had taken the last watch. Keyleth was the last to be woke. Wake up, sir, he said. The day has come upon us. Keyleth roused himself before going to check on Wildfin. The fire had dwindled down and now lay a pile of warm embers and ash. Wildfin seemed now to be peacefully resting. Keyleth attempted to rouse him, shaking him gently. Slowly, Wildfin opened his eyes. Then he began to cough and splutter. He sat straight up and placed his hand on his head as he coughed. When he had ceased, he looked up at Keyleth, sorely rubbing at his skull. Ugh, what happened? He croaked. We crossed the river, said Keyleth, but only one of your men survived. Wildfin looked around to see his last remaining companion. No, he cried and began to weep. Keyleth left the man alone and went to survey the surroundings in the early morning light. The sky was still full of rain clouds and the air was chill upon Keyleth's skin. He looked towards the mountains, their fierce jagged edges more discernible in the daylight. Looking south, the mountains continued to the edge of sight. The Great Wall was not visible as they had come too far north. There before them lay an open barren path across the cracked dry plain. Once they began their journey, they would have to cross the plain as quickly as possible, as there was no cover between here and the evil heights. To his dismay, there appeared to be almost ten leagues to cover in the open before they reached the mountain's base. Turning to his men, Keyleth spoke. We shall take a straight pass course across the plain and see what we can. Then, if necessary, we shall veer south and attempt to come to the wall. He said this with such authority that all the men simply nodded, willing to do whatever this commander outlined. "'When do we start, Lord?' said the Calliopian. "'For Master Wildfin is still weak and needs for rest.' "'No,' interrupted Wildfin. "'I'm fine. We can go.' "'We shall leave ere the sun rises above the top of those barren peaks,' said Keyleth. "'We need time to pack, make ready, and plan our course more closely.' No one argued." Wildfin sighed and lay back down on his bed of coats and clothes. In the gray dawn, Keyleth and the other men gathered around one great dead tree whose white branches clicked together in the wind. They began to discuss their plan and spoke of whether they should try the southward road or attempt to scale the mountains, and as they spoke, a fog crept in from the north, covering the land in a misty haze. In time... When Wildfin felt stronger, the men made ready to depart. The fog partly obscured their view of the mountains. Wildfin was now on his feet. They had resupplied their weapons and arrows from what they had left, and each took only a small pack with them on their journey over the plain. It was silent as the seven men set out. No bird or beast uttered a sound. The plain was rocky and void of comfort, beauty, or life. There was nothing, nothing but rock and rubble. Their companions' hearts were heavy. Keyleth judged it to be at least a four-day journey across the expanse, and they could not risk another fire on the open plain. The travelers trudged on into the growing fog. In front was Keyleth, with Wildfin at his side. Behind there was Mura, a tall man with fast feet and sharp eyes. There was also Sandar, a strong-willed Vimerian man, and Pan, a short squat man with rough black hair. 
There was Tavan, a quiet but intelligent man from the west of Weimar. Finally was the other Calliopean man, the last of Wildman's company, whose name was Boone, a quick-footed hunter from the woods of Calliopa. They had not gone far before the fog surrounded them in a cold, chilly mist. They could no longer see the shapes of the mountains before them, and, they still, went, and still they went on. As they walked, dust was kicked up from, the, from their boots, and the, and the air was full of smoke and ash. And their throats began to get sore, and they coughed. Their feet grew tired on the hard ground, and still they could see no farther than twenty yards in front of them. And still they walked, until finally Wildthon fell to the ground with weakness. His weariness from the river had not fully worn off, and the air was taking a toll on his lungs. Boone and Tavan got him to his feet and supported him as he walked. It was past midday and in growing heat when the fog finally cleared up. The mountains came slowly into view until their sharp peaks were so clear to their eyes that they became sore, and still they walked on. But now, with the cool mist gone, the ground and sky seemed bluntly hot and dry, and the ground seemed to parch and crack beneath their feet as if a great straw was sucking the water from the very earth beneath them. They threw off their cloaks as the blinding sun beat down upon them. Finally they stopped, for they could go no further without rest. They had traveled nearly two leagues since that morning, and the line where the river was sat on the edge of sight, and the mountains were even farther, much, much farther. They sat in the middle of a dry ocean of seething heat, void of water or moisture. Keyleth sat down hard upon a tall, flat rock, and the others sat around him. "'Take some water,' he said, "'but only a mouthful. We must conserve what little we have.' The men complied, though when the cool water touched their lips, their bodies urged them to keep drinking, to take in every drop of liquid that they could, and it took all of their willpower for the seven men to pull the water skins away and seal them. And they rested and took small food, sheltering themselves with their cloaks from the, the blazing hot sun high above. All around them the heated plains stretched, mile upon mile, with no comfort, water, or, or, uh, or cover. And so, when the day grew cooler and the sun sank lower, the company set off once more, bearing a hopeless course towards the distant mountains. They traveled another dreary league that evening before the sun sank below the, west the western horizon past the line of the cool, clear river. The men fell to their knees and wept, for they were weary and their throats parched. Once again they took food and water and they lay down on the dusty earth, shielding themselves in their cloaks, while Pan took the first watch. The night was dreary, cold, and dark, save for some faint starlight, but this in, too was, this, this in, in time, too, was shrouded by clouds and mist, and the company could not build a fire for risk of being seen in the mountains. Upon the rising of the sun, the men took a meager breakfast and departed once more, they traveled another three, three miles or more before resting. They had come to a large rock, nearly six feet high, which shot up from the ground and would provide some cover for the sun, from the sun and mountains. When we find some shelter, we shall take it, said Keyleth. Besides, we should travel by nightfall. We can too easily be spotted from those filthy heights. And so they rested long that day, out of the sun, and slept as best they could. At sunset they departed, though heavy-hearted to leave the rock, as they knew they would, they would not find such another shelter. 
As they walked, Mura began to lag behind along with Sandar. The night was restless as the company covered another two leagues that night. The wind gnawed at their skin, kicking up ash and grime in their faces, and sleep nagged at them, dragging them down like a great weight. And so followed the third day across the plain when Mura the Tall fell from exhaustion behind the group. And when they turned to see him lying there, Keyleth ran to him and held him in his arms. But his lips were dry, his breath was not, and the beat of his heart soon ceased. And the men wept, and Keyleth cried most of all, for Mura had been his friend. And he laid his body on the earth and blessed it. He laid Mura's cloak over him to protect him from the sun. And still they went on, the mountains looming ever nearer. They began to forget what the, the look of earth, fresh and green, and, and every drop of water in their lips seemed a blessing. And still they went on. And so it was that the company halted at the rising of the sun on the fourth day after a night of walking. The men despaired as they took food and drink, for their supplies were nigh on half gone, and already the men were very weak. They had not the strength to fight or run. They had barely the will to walk. They would have little food for the return trip. But Wildfin and Keyleth tried to raise their hearts by saying, Who could do this task if not them? As Keyleth looked towards the east in the early morning, he saw they drew near the mountain's base, less than three leagues there were. In the distance, a little way off, Keyleth saw large obstructions of the path, which he took to be large boulders and stones. Less than a league, he guessed. Turning to the man, he said, We may find a day's shelter by the rocks there. We shall have more cover and less ground to travel this night. We draw near our destination. Seeing their dry, hopeless faces, he spoke once more. Do not despair yet. He said this with great, with great effort and force, so that each man stared at him with wonder. For we may yet hope to find water and maybe game by the base of the mountains, where there may be some runoff. And with this, the men felt suddenly invigorated, and they stood, willing to follow this man in fair speech to whatever end. And so they set off in the mid-morning, making for the shelter of the great boulders. The men were weak, and the sun high and bright, when at last they reached the rocks. For rocks indeed they were, but carven almost, and not of natural shape. Many stood in the shape of men-like creatures, dark and foreboding, not clear and defined, just a, a faint outline that could be made out to look like something if one strained their eyes. The men rested under their shadow, for the ground between here and the mountains seemed more rocky and filled with other boulders and carven rocks such as these, and for this the men were grateful, however strange their company might be. They rested long that day and into the night, trying to forget their weariness and thirst. They would now give anything to be swept away in the great river as their companions had, but the voice of Keyleth rang on their heads, Do not despair yet! And they did not. Keyleth took, for, took watch again in the early hours of the night once more. In the dark quiet he thought to himself as the dull wind blew, but no other sound did he hear. He lay leaning against a rock looking east and half asleep. He would certainly have drifted off had he not seen something which pulled him back to his reality. High above in the sharp jagged peaks which were now starting to become very clear, Keyleth saw a small faint light as if a light from a fire leap up somewhere on the mountainside. Keyleth strained his ears for any sound, but he heard none. Presently, the light went out, and all was dark.
It was around midnight when Keyleth roused the men, ready for the final leg of their journey, for now less than two leagues lay between them and the mountains of Vinakthur. The men groggily got up, and as they walked, Keyleth thought of the light he had seen, pondering who could have produced it, but it quickly passed from thought. It was just daybreak, as the first light of sun began creeping over the tops of the mountains, that the company arrived at the base of Balom Brule, the first low squat peak of the evil mountains. By this time, Sandar was staggering with exhaustion, and it was all he could his, he, he, uh, it was all his companions could do to help him to a rock where he sat down, head between his knees. The plane was taking a toll on the company. They had begun to see shapes in the darkness that others couldn't see, strange figures out of nightmares creeping out from behind rocks off to one side. And one would yelp and fright sometimes, and the others would spin to look, but find nothing, only the continuing line of eerie carven figures in the rocks. And as the company drew nearer the mountain's base, the statue-like rocks straightened out, forming a narrow lane straight towards the black slopes of Belombrul. And the closer they got, the carven figures on either side became more and more distinct, their features sharper and their expressions clearer. And this made the company even more terrified, for they were in the image of leering demons hanging over the path, lips pulled back in a twisted sneer. Some had horns pointed and sharp, and others long fangs and lolling tongues. And it seemed that only Keyleth and Wyleth, to an extent, seemed to keep their heads. And so it was that the companions arrived at the mountain's base four days after their crossing at the Zandar River, half the men driven almost mad with weariness, fear, and delusion. And they rested before the dry, rocky slopes. The rocks were piled at the base, and above that the dusty slope shot up sharply from the ground. Two final gargoyles stood on either side of the narrow road, the most hideous and crudely shaped. Their lines were cut deep and the features sharp and piercing. Long claws dug into the ground and the heads peered under the path so that any who walked between them must endure their gaze. Beyond the statues, the path stopped at the large heap of boulders and sharp-edged rocks. Past these, as Keyleth looked on, he saw that the rocky slope was inset with many rocks thrusting outwards, which could provide as a, uh, as a grip or handhold for those who would attempt to scale the mountain. Looking upward, Keyleth saw that about a hundred feet up, Two large stony walls were thrust out from the hillside, forming a narrow vertical shaft going up at least another 200 feet further up the cliff face. The walls appeared to be only, only about two meters apart, and using these, and putting feet against one wall and back against the other, one might climb up to the narrow ledge that was at the top of the southernmost wall. Past, the, past there, Keyleth could not see well, but he judged that one might be able to climb up and between the mountains where the two sides met about fifty feet up from the ledge. Keyleth stared up at the mountainside for several minutes before turning back to the weary men all about him. The men now despaired, for there was indeed no stream or life here at the mountain's base, only more dry, barren land and piles of large gray rocks. For the time being, the mountains still shielded them from the sun, and they could, for a while at least, rest in the shade. Well, Keyleth began no longer hiding his own disappointment. We now have three options. One, we continue on our set course, over the ridge. At this, the men drew their eyes upward, and upon resting on the shaft, they cried out from fear and hopelessness. Second, continued Keyleth, 
we head south for another seven leagues or more in an attempt to investigate the wall. The men gaped at him. He could not be serious. By now their chances of making it home alive were practically nothing, but to continue on for another seven leagues was unthinkable. Which, I realize, is hardly practical in our current condition. The men scoffed. Practical? How could he remain so calm and in control? It wasn't practical. Death wasn't practical. Life wasn't. Nothing was practical. Finally, finished Keyleth, we can attempt to return the way we came, to which I ask you, why did we come all this way merely to turn back? No, the only practical way, he said, surveying the men, is to ascend these dreaded peaks and try as we might to complete this task which we have been appointed. Once more on this journey, the men stared at him with awe. His voice had a music to it, a sweet song that rang out of hope and invigorated them. The men stood, though weak as they were, and together the six turned to face the long, steep climb over the mountains of Vinakdur.